0: You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Father Mark Boulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, gentlemen.
1: Good morning, Father. Good morning.
0: So I'm excited about today's topic because when I wrote my book on Galatians, I wrote it based on an assumption, an assumption that I think for a lot of people is very difficult to swallow. But for me, hearing Galatians without first taking this assumption makes the book very difficult to understand and helps explain for me why so many people have mishandled scripture over the years. And that is the case that Father Paul has made, Richard, about scripture being a totality not something that you can take in bits and pieces. You have to take very seriously individual books and the audience to whom they're addressed and the issues being addressed by the writer and so forth. But at the end of the day, you have to receive scripture as a totality. And once you do this, you begin to see on a technical basis how different books interact with each other how the terminology is interconnected, how there's a movement in the narrative, how it all fits. And so today, Father Paul, we're very excited to hear you talk about something that for me had to be taken as an assumption because to make the case is a scholar's life's work, and you are that scholar, and this is your life's work. So we are excited to hear you talk about the emergence of Scripture as a totality. Well,
1: thank you very much. I'm going to begin with a comment that fits the umbrella of the podcast, Scripture as Literature. In literature, one cannot avoid the circular argument. You can make argument for and against non-ending. Being aware of that, I personally endorse what I would call the cumulative argument, meaning that if you see something happening again and again and again and again, you start leaning towards saying that this cannot be happenstance. It seems to be part of the deal. Now, can you prove that the way you can prove something in the lab? I don't think so. And even in the lab nowadays, people say this DNA business, very often it's not foolproof and so on. I mean, it's never ending. And recently, I received from my colleague in Poland, Bartosz Adamzuski, his latest book on Matthew, where he presents the case. <laughs> which is going to be the last of the scholars definitely that matthew used acts not only on the information level but on the structure level his following acts and if so then matthew was written after luke which is my thesis and his against the majority of scholars but his book is more tedious than mine because he is going through every passage and trying to show you in the original and there is no way around it. So what I would like to say this morning is a series of points that are impressive and would invite the hearer again, not to judge at the end of the podcast. No, the hearer in this particular case will have to go and spend at least a good year reading scripture to decide for oneself whether it is so or not. But anyway, two major points. The first one is the language, which is the same throughout. There is no progression of Hebrew as chlorus likes to say, archaic Hebrew, classic Hebrew, post-biblical Hebrew, and so on and so forth. I mean, all this, it exists in history, but it is not in the Bible. You can move from any book to another, and you are in the same language, and Dr. Benton knows that. When he discusses a word, he goes through the whole Bible and does not say, but here this one uses, and so on. It's not so. The other one are the interconnections. Let me go through that. I have three points in the interconnections. Early, unnecessary geographical reference to regions that are central to the scriptural story later. Very quickly, Tigris, Euphrates are already mentioned in Genesis 2. And then Havilah and Cush are mentioned again with the Garden of Eden in 2. Ararat, which is in northern Mesopotamia, is mentioned in Genesis 1 and then 2 Kings Isaiah, Jeremiah later. Just like that. Why? According to me, because it deals with that region where the biblical story took place. Move to Genesis 11, Babel, Shinar, and then very important for me, Bikah, that valley or plain that is found only in Ezekiel later. I mean, you can imagine babel and bichah in genesis eleven it is as though ezekiel is already present another one is ur of the chaldeans very early in genesis eleven and fifteen and notice ur of the chaldeans and scholars have said time and again that chaldeans is the name of the new babylonians the Neo-Babylonians, much later under Nabuchadnezzar, One can see that the authors are moving back and forth, and this Ur of the Chaldeans appear way towards the end of the Ketubim. It's only in Genesis and in Nehemiah chapter nine. Another point, early, early in Genesis, I'm concentrating on that. Haran, which is upper Mesopotamia, where Terah resided for some time, you know, in Genesis 11, the father of Abraham. Then it appears later with Isaac and Jacob. The wife of Isaac is taken from Haran, the servant of Abraham, goes there. Then Jacob spends seven years plus seven years with the same Laban in Haran. Another point, which perhaps is more impressive than all the others, although the others are impressive, is that in Genesis 12, we hear about a mini exile of Abraham in Egypt, and he is saved from it with the same terminology that is used later about the exodus of the Israelites Bethel and Hebron are mentioned in Genesis 12:13 very early two extremely important cities later on in the history of Israel and Judah last and in no way least the Hittites which are way up from Turkey but somehow close to ararat which is the region of the sources of the tigris and the euphrates hittites why would one hear about the hittites then an entire chapter twenty three of genesis where we hear about Ephron, which by the way is a Semitic name, the Hittite. Remember when Abraham wanted to buy a small piece of land to bury his wife. And then in Joshua 1, when the people cross into Canaan, the only name that appears there is that it is the land of the Hittites. Amazing. But then later on, one is going to meet Uriah the Hittite, the top man in the army of David. And remember that the Hittites are the northernmost people mentioned in the Bible. The only explanation that they are close to the sources of the Tigris and the Euphrates. The same rule of interconnection applies to persons and groups. Let's go over them quickly. Canaan is mentioned early on as a son of Ham in Genesis 10. In other words, we don't need their Canaan. We're talking about the three sons of Noah. And suddenly, Canaan appears out of the blue. Another example is the Gibeonites in Joshua 9, where we hear about Joshua making a covenant with them. Although they lied to him, but he made a covenant, and other people were upset that he made the covenant, but it was too late he made the covenant. Then you start asking, why this story? If you take it out of Joshua, trust me, not only the people, but even we three will not miss it. But then it appears way later in 2 Samuel 21 when the people of Israel mistreat Gibeonites and the covenant is brought up. One may not do that. A third example, Micah of Moreshet. Technically, Micah of Morashit, who is one of the 12 prophets, is mentioned in Jeremiah 26. Then Jeremiah is mentioned in Daniel 9. There is a direct reference to names from different books. And my hearers should be reminded that Daniel is a book from the end of the Ketubim, way down there with the Ketubim. He's not part of the prophets originally. Another example the connection between the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, which becomes suddenly the title of a psalm. Psalm, remember again, it's the Ketubim way at the end. Specifically, we hear a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Now, it's strange, I mean, whether there is this title or not. The content of the psalm is still the same. It doesn't make any difference. But the fact that it is there shows us interconnections. And I have shown in my article on Psalms that there is a connection with Isaiah 66, where we hear humble and contrite in spirit in 66.2. And the parallel between Isaiah 66 and Psalm 51 is that in both cases, we hear that the sacrifices are not necessary. And in Psalm 51, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. Spirit, a broken and contrite heart it is only then that god may accept your sacrifices and this feature is already in isaiah fifty six which shows that the interconnection where we hear for thus says the high and lofty one it's a beautiful text who inhabits eternity whose name is holy i dwell in the high and holy place and let's be attentive and also with him who is of contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite it's amazing it speaks about a god who is totally on high and with the humble in isaiah fifty seven fifteen this reminds me of another psalm where we hear about the mighty eternal who is enthroned in his temple and who is referred to as the shepherd of israel another example isaiah and jeremiah and jonah are mentioned in one and two kings unnecessarily in the case of isaiah the connection is so flagrant that 2 Kings 18:20 is found almost verbatim in Isaiah 36 through 39 which the readers would not have missed like if you eliminate chapters 36 to 39 in Isaiah you're not going to miss much you say that you're going to miss it because you know that they are there verbatim So I spoke about unnecessary geographical references, interconnections between persons and groups, and last but not least, topics. The covenant inclusive of all nations, of which we hear in Isaiah, is already mentioned in Genesis chapter 17 with circumcision. The promise very early is already mentioned in Genesis. Another example which is really impressive is circumcision. That is found early on in Genesis and then disappears completely, except obviously for the mention of the circumcision of the heart in the law. But then you don't hear any more about circumcision except in Jeremiah, and negatively, circumcision doesn't make any difference because so many people are circumcised. But then, way down. It appears in the Maccabees and then in the New Testament, which, by the way, but I cannot enter into that now. I discussed it in my book. The New Testament is interconnected already with the Old Testament. When I say already, in other words, when the authors started writing the New Testament, as you have read in my book, they just composed it a la Old Testament. The third topic, which is very interesting, in Joshua 8, the law is read to Israel and the foreigners, which is the translation of the Hebrew word gerim. So the law is for both. So we are already at the threshold of the New Testament. But there is something also interesting there, that Israel is reminded very often that when it or they the israelites were in egypt they were gerim foreigners in egypt that's why they must love the foreigner so this text in joshua eight the law being read twice to israel and the foreigners residing with them it applies to both is really an extremely encompassing text now let's remember that in Joshua we have in the following chapter the story of the gibeonites and in chapter 1 that the land is the land of the hittites again you know it's much more i don't like to use the word complex because it sounds negative but it's much richer than a beginner hearer or reader is aware of so once more, you know, one needs to be patient and studious at the same time, not patient and doing prostrations. You have to be studious and rehear the biblical text. Let me end with these comments that the entire message of the Bible, as I showed in my book, is already in Genesis 1 through 11 that deals with the entire realm of humans including the animals and the vegetation as we hear in chapter one and in the story of the flood and even beyond that according to me the whole biblical message is already in genesis one through four which is the toledot of the heavens and the earth which means the good elohim of genesis one is the god of the heavens and the earth and all its inhabitants or their inhabitants. This is found again at the end of the Ketubim in the strange book of Daniel. Again, remember, it's one of the Ketubim where God acts as judge. Remember, Daniel, God is my judge or God is judge, which is very funny. I mean, Daniel is active among successive kingdoms. It's as though he has lived for hundreds of years is ridiculous. But that's the idea of the story that God controls all these people. We have a reflection of that in the book of Esther, where the name of God is not even mentioned. Remember what I say in my book about the inexistent God, but he is there. And Another important book is the book of Psalms. It is the liturgy of Zion. You know, at the beginning, we have the use of king for earthly kings, and slowly on, more often, the king is God. The same thing at the beginning, we have more Jerusalem towards the end, more Zion, and at the beginning, the interest in Israel and Judah, and slowly on with the nations, and we end up with all peoples and nations praising the Lord. So the book of Psalms is concocted, I mentioned already the example of psalm fifty one where the most important thing is precisely to praise the lord of the law in psalm one you have the law and the longest psalm one nineteen is an ode to the law and the words of the law let me mention an aside here which I discuss in detail in my book. Again, you know, the concentration on individuals is not important. The servant of Isaiah 53 is referred to as a lamb and very interestingly, as a ewe. And ewe comes from the Hebrew Rahel, which is Rachel, the mother of the flock. We have three words, cabes, lamb, Rahel, ewe, and flock, Son very powerful combination of words that speak of the flock. And here I would like to end with the cumulative argument i think unless the people of the west and all of us are westerns because we are platonic when we still debate which came first the chicken or the egg and i can't stand when in the west really people discuss this the chicken and the egg my dear friends in scripture in the beginning was the chicken and then came the egg we don't have seeds out of which come the grass and the uh, trees the text says grass and trees were there in which the seeds are for the continuation in the beginning we don't have an egg that grows into a human being you have a couple remember sex is very important intercourse and out of them you have children coming now why is it so It's not because scripture has a philosophy that says that it is so. It is because the assumption is shepherd life and shepherdism. And as I said in previous podcasts and in my book, in the beginning is the flock and then they are sheep in this flock. It's not that you have wandering sheep that unite in a flock. Sheep do not vote. They do not think, so the orthodox better start thinking about eliminating from the text of baptism reasonable sheep. Logiki sheep means the sheep who listen to the logos of God. It's not that they use their platonic logos. Putting all this together, for me, it's ultra clear that you have a totality. A point in the mind of the authors of the entire Bible, and remember my thesis regarding their being also the translators into Greek, that they poured this into interconnected stories, as I showed you at the beginning. Interconnected stories. It's an impossibility that it would be otherwise, unless you say people wrote this and then after that they wrote that and so on. And this creates more problems than it solves. We all know the bad end of the thesis about the document Q. I mean, scholars even create a document that never existed and they assume it. Q, proto-Luke, proto-Matthew, proto-Mark. I mean, come on now. I mean, we don't have these manuscripts. Once you start like this, you can make up everything, that there was a small text of the law that was the Ten Commandments, and then it was developed into four books. I mean, who's going to believe that? Except the scholars, because they need to have an itch for them to write something. I mean, we know this. Publish or perish. <laughs> you know, basically, you are a perishing sheep in the Bible. <laughs> So anyway, it's an invitation. It's a very broad subject. I try to cover it to the best of my ability. Again, it's more than any other podcast, an invitation to the hearers to really be serious about not the Bible, but the text that we refer to as Bible. You can call it anything you want. We all know that the Greek Bible means book. That's all it means. You all know my younger colleague in Lebanon, Skandar Shar. <laughs> I was not privy to that story, but I was told, and I believe it, that once a young person in a meeting said, in the Holy Bible or Holy Book, that's how we refer to it in Arabic, al-Kitab al-Muqaddas. And before the young man had the opportunity to continue Skandar, why do you call it holy? Did it? Holify you, meaning sanctify you. You know, it's the same root in Arabic as in Latin, to sanctify. He said, did it holify you? (laughs) And everybody froze. The message was, don't throw words like that. Just tell me in that book there is, and we talk about it and i believe it's high time that we start doing this and not throw words right and left remembering the answer of our master and teacher jesus to the young man who called him good teacher and his answer was come on now don't throw words right and left so skandar did not come with his story out of the blue sky he got it from somewhere let's call a spade a spade and then we go from there whether you want to use your spade as a sword to chop heads and ears off or whether you want to use it as being the sword of the spirit, meaning using your tongue to teach people. And with this, I wrap up. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, that I did not mention the interconnection between the two first cousins, as I call them, your Hosea and my Ezekiel. My apologies, Dr. Benton. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that, Father. Thank you. <laughs> so, one of the questions that I have, you know, I hear from scholars another model of how the Bible was brought into being, which is there were texts that were out there, but the reason why you see the totality, the reason why you see these threads running throughout, is you had a school of redactors or editors who took these existent texts and put them together into a single whole. But you're making a stronger argument, from what I understand, which is that it was written as a single whole. How do you distinguish between those two arguments and why do you think that that's an important distinction to make? It's for a very simple reason that in my approach, I'm not assuming anything. But in the other scholars' approach, they are assuming actual documents or texts that we don't have. They are taking these documents out of books that exist as books in the Bible. Q. Proto-Mark, Proto-Luke, Proto-Matthew, the earlier text. Do we have them? Can they show them to me? They can't, which means we are at a standstill. (laughs) But at least I am not appealing to anything I cannot defend. Again, is this a proof? You know, in literature is very hard. That's all I'm saying. It's very hard. It's like plagiarism. You can say, well, sometimes, you know, people pointed to me that something I have said, Chrysostom said it before me, but personally, I had never read it before in Chrysostom. But I have to give in by saying that Chrysostom said that before me. But is this a proof that I quoted Chrysostom? Ah, it's very touchy here. That's my answer to your point. I'm very well aware of it, but it's beginning to make less and less sense. I remember Karavidopoulos, a professor of New Testament in Greece, who was a member of the committee that oversaw the Greek New Testament, who said once, I mean, it's really interesting, this extra volume where the scholars discuss an original that was rephrased in different manuscripts. And listen to his point. The main thing is not whether you or I agree or disagree with him. He said, when you are doing this, you are ending up with a supposed original text that is reflected in manuscript A and B and C and D. But he says, that does not exist. And here's where Trobisch is very important. He starts his research on the basis of the actual manuscripts. Okay, just a point, Richard, to show you that it's much trickier than it looks, this thing about the original document. You have footnotes in the Greek New Testament where this reading is found in these manuscripts and this other reading in that manuscript and so on. And scholars do that. And I used to do that in the past. And somehow you have to do it somewhere, you know, to try to understand what's going on. But then the trouble is that you're coming up with an Ur text, as it is called in German, you know, but it doesn't exist. And we have to hear these challenges and take them seriously.
0: So often in literature, we assume in the humanities, this is the way American culture deals with the humanities. We even refer to them as the soft sciences, but I think it's a fallacy. I think the complexity of literature in some ways is more complex than what we call the hard sciences. But because you're dealing with ideas and because of the tendency towards abstraction and Platonism, people can fake it a lot easier with the humanities. But the fact remains, you're dealing with a problem and you have to force yourself to do archaeology in the actual manuscripts you have, you can't make up a source. I really want our listeners to hear this, Father Paul, because we cheat on literature all the time. When someone does an algebra formula, it's very easy to show their mistake because the scope is very limited and it's black and white in a very obvious and simple way. In literature, you're dealing with the same type of precision on a much higher level of complexity. So it really is a lot of work to answer these questions, and it's interesting to hear how people cheat. You invent a source that doesn't exist because it fits your theory.
1: Here you remind me of what I said so often, and both of you know it and more people know it, that what really helped me the most in approaching literature, because I confess it, I'm not a literature person. People who hear me imagine that I have read lots of things and so on. No, I'm more interested in phraseology and grammar In language, if you like, more than literature. But what helps me a lot to figure out literature is my medical studies, biology. The irking thing about biology is it is there the way it is, whether you like it or not. Like we're trying to change it now, you know, you can make robots and so on, artificial knees and so on. I'm not debating that, but the artificial knee has to function as a knee. Otherwise, it's not a knee and the knee is a knee in this sense slowly on i realize that one has to take seriously genesis one we do not have eggs and sperm that become something we have a something in which there are eggs and sperm that's the statement This helps me, although I grew up in the Middle East, but I grew up in a city and so on, to understand this phenomenon of flock. And I'm talking about Middle Eastern flock, not Scottish flock, where things are the way they are. You said it in your own way. I'm just trying to back what you're saying from an actual example, which is myself and how slowly on I realize things. And you all remember how I, most of my examples are from biology and vegetation, which is the same thing. It is so. And one is first to submit to that. And you see how science goes. The Famous story of Newton. First of all, he was dealing with a fact that if you hold an apple and you let it go, it falls down. He didn't create his own world it's not a c.s lewis and narnia and so on remember what i say about the bible it's shepherdism is an actuality i'm backing your point and i'm not talking about biology as a science i am talking about the reality of the organisms animal and vegetation as they are and you study them You do not study a limb. I mean, we were taught that in medical. Okay, you have to study at one point the liver. But please remember that a liver is an organ of this organism. Uh, (laughs) And that's the way it is. This does not mean, let me go on an aside here, because people will... Oh, so you're talking about you have to treat the ailing person and not the ailment. No! 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 If I have a broken knee, I want you to fix my knee. I don't want you to fix my whole self. But for you to fix my knee, you have to have a knowledge of my totality, not as a platonic self but as an organism, that's what I'm trying to say. And you touched on that. And this links your comment, Father Mark, with the comment of Dr. Benton. The trouble is that, you know, it's so real that you can push it in this direction or that direction, but it is only the practice. And I would like to add at the end, a word that I mentioned all them: honesty. Each hearer has to be honest to oneself. If you're not honest to yourself, you're not going to be honest to the God of Scripture. (laughs) And that's where the hardship lies. So I hope my hearers will get this, our hearers, that the podcasts are not entertaining and worse, uplifting. I can't stand that word. No, they are not even illuminating, except illuminating as an invitation for each hearer to do the work. Because let's say how many times I told you that. Okay, someone asks you and you say that Father Paul in his podcast said. Imagine someone telling you, but what did he mean by this that you are quoting? And I'm gone somewhere underground in one of the states of the United States. How are you gonna ask me? Unless you have digested the matter yourself. That's why my critique against those who keep quoting the fathers in their sermons. Well, the sermon is yours because your quotations are cut out like created documents in your head. If I want to know what the fathers, say, I can read them. You are here on Sunday. You are telling me and your reference should be solely the biblical text. And that's the challenge. God put his own words in the mouth of Jeremiah for Jeremiah to spit out. And then he got tired and he sent a printed book to Ezekiel. And he says to Ezekiel, repeat what I tell you. I told you to say that's all you're supposed to do. Not even extra comments. It's amazing, that book. Anyway, perhaps we stretched it, but I hope it was worth it. And I'm sure you won't let me off the hook and come back at me through a subtopic. <laughs>
0: Great episode, Father yeah, Paul. Thank you very a much, wonderful, Father. Wonderful episode. And,
1: thank you, you know,
0: that last point you made, I just want to repeat it for folks. Over all these centuries, all of the people that worked with Scripture to try to explain it to people— if they were worth their salt would be scandalized to hear that we quote them instead of dealing directly with Scripture. I think this point that Father Paul made is to borrow a Father Paulism of the essence, that we have to have integrity and take seriously what others have taken seriously, which is the content of the primary text, which is the Word of God. Thanks very much, Father Paul. Thanks. Oh, for thank, thank much, you Paul.
1: both. I truly appreciate it, perhaps today more than ever. <laughs> thank take you care. very much. And God be with you.